they actually had no idea what they captured at this stage. And they, he was actually asked during the interrogation whether there was a booby trap on the submarine. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> which I thought was quite a nice little detail. Because yeah. the, the to me, that reads as the Germans clearly have no idea Just what they know. have. They have no Just idea no what's idea. on their hands. Hello and welcome to another episode of For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, presented by me, Dave, the history nerd. And by me, Dave, the tech geek. Um, And today we're actually doing something slightly different in that we're looking at the story of two people Mm. as they're escaping. Um, One that goes by the name Donald Lister and one that goes by the name Frederick William Edmund Hammond. And in case you needed to know, yes, I did need to write that down first so I could get that right. (laughs) We have done the joint escape before. Yeah, that's true. Uh, our very first episode, in yeah. fact, uh, when we looked at the episode of Codner and Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but they're, they're I mean they're not uncommon. But uh, pre- predominantly, we've been looking at individual yes. escape efforts. And yeah, it's, it's it's nice to look at a joint escape again. Hammond and Lister um, were naval. They were in the Nor- right. Royal Navy. These are our first um, naval escapes, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it is. I think we've uh, we've looked at both Army and Air Force mm-hmm. uh, escapers before, but I think this is our first naval escapers, which is not wholly surprising, actually. So um, a very small percentage of escapers were from the Navy. Yeah. And there's a very simple reason for this, which is a very small percentage of prisoners of war were from the Royal Navy. <laughs> That's fair enough. And there is, again, a very simple reason for that too, yep. which is that uh, by virtue of the surface on which they fought, or <laughs> under which they fought, uh, right. um, they had a much lower chance of survival right okay um so if you were in the air force and shot down you possibly had the chance of if, if you were lucky you could glide the plane down and crash land it and yeah. survive that way um or you could possibly parachute out of the plane mm-hmm. you know from several thousand feet and float down that way yeah and so you had a reasonable chance i mean it's all relative but you had a reasonable chance of survival yes equally in the army you're on land and therefore you might just be surrounded and sure you were getting shot at but if you weren't hit you were just captured yeah you know there's no kind of additional factor to really think about beyond maybe you're in a desert or extreme cold or you know in norway or something like that but by and large you were in Europe or North Africa yeah, or what yeah, have yeah. you, and had a better, again, better and average chance of surviving long enough to be captured. Yes. We say. If you're in the Navy, you didn't really have, you know, if, if your ship was uh, sunk. Yeah, there was another obstacle in the way. There was there. another obstacle in the way. Equally, if you were in a submarine, there was an even bigger obstacle in the <laughs> yes, way. Yes, yeah. From a prisoner of war perspective, the chances yeah. of you reaching the point of being a prisoner of war were much, much lower if you were in the Navy. Yeah. And so, as a result, the prison population that were originally from the Navy was much lower and therefore the number of escapers by virtue of percentages. Which makes these guys reasonably unique, yeah. actually. Uh, certainly in a small minority, made even more so by the fact that they were submariners. Both of them. Right. I must admit, when I first came across them, I saw their ranking and kind of wondered, 
what is that? Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> I'll be honest, I didn't fully understand it myself looking and at it. I wondered if initially it was a, a, a submarine ranking, but it doesn't appear to be. Mm-hmm. And it just says ERA Hammond, ERA Lister. And as I say at first, you know, it's not like captain or or yeah. private or, or it, lieutenant, lieutenant or, or commander or something where there's a fairly self-explanatory ranking. Yeah, and it is it is in essence a subsection of the naval ranking system, and it actually stands for engine room artificer. Right. So an engine room artificer, and I'm assuming that I've got the pronunciation of artificer correct. Yep. Uh, is things like fitters. Boilermakers, coppersmiths, that sort of thing. Ah, okay. And, and so they were, I suppose, kind of maintenance men, in a way, in the in a in an engine room for yeah. a ship or a, s- a submarine, in this case, um, and were responsible for the upkeep and maintenance. Yeah, and in, in some ways, the production of the mechanics. Yeah, stuff you don't necessarily think about when you think about it in the context of 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 the war at large, but especially if you're in a submarine, I imagine absolutely vital. Absolutely crucial, exactly. Yeah. And so both both uh, Hammond and Lister um were engine room artificers. Ah. But they they as although I said they were both um submariners, they actually served on different submarines. Oh, okay. And actually both have really interesting capture stories. Okay. Um and so I'm actually going to go into a fair amount of depth on both of them. I'm going to look at Hammond first, okay. who served on HM Submarine Shark. Shark was an S-class submarine, um, which meant it was crewed by about 40 officers in ratings. Okay. Um, by 1939, uh, only about 12 were in service. So of this particular of this submarine? Particular, wow. Uh, submarine class. So not particularly large. I mean, the, the service of this class um, stretched from before the war and into post-war as well yeah. but at the point of 1939 um there were only 12 in service and only three actually survived uh wow. the entirety of the war of this of these wow. 12 um a point i will come back to later okay so in in july 1940 he was serving uh, just off the coast of norway okay. um on 5th of july 1940 uh, this is only uh, less than a month after the fall of Norway. So Norway had been invaded and occupied, successfully occupied by Germany. Okay, yep. Um, in sort of April to June. Yep. So on the 10th of June, the occupation was completed. Yes. And this is just the 5th of July. So I did try and find out if there was any particular battle that was involved in, but it appears to have just been patrolling. Uh, okay. Essentially trying to keep an eye on... A very long coastline with a lot of fjords. Yeah. Yep. And so it was just kind of on patrol. And it appears to have been spotted and attacked. They did fight back. It was uh, They were attacked by plane, um, but it was sufficiently damaged that it had to essentially surface and allow itself to be picked up. The danger of this, of course, was that by surrendering, they were potentially allowing a submarine to be captured. Yeah. And in actual fact, they did start towing away HM's, HMS Shark. Okay. Uh, the Germans started towing away. The Germans away. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So they had surfaced, been taken off the submarine to safety, and the crew were all safe by this point. Yep. What the Germans didn't know was that they'd actually intentionally scuttled the submarine and it started dragging two towboats underneath the surface. <laughs> ah. So they actually had to cut the wires uh, to from the tugs. 
right. taken in the submarine before. Otherwise, they would have been taken. Otherwise, they've been the taken down wow. with the submarine. Exactly. And there are stories about the crew watching this happen and cheering. Um, <laughs> Just been captured, but hey. yeah, it, but pretty much, yeah, exactly. Uh, so the crew at least got to watch that. Yes. Um, the sort of moments panic on both the tugs as they suddenly realise <laughs> that they were being uh, dragged under yep. by a sinking submarine. As I said, only three of the twelve that were built survived the war and this actually led to a song being sung really or i should say a song being written about the s class um called 12 little s boats uh which was set to a nursery rhyme not a nursery rhyme that i recognized and when i looked up the author of the nursery rhyme, i didn't recognize that okay either. okay so m- maybe there's a listener that knows nursery rhymes in uh by septimus winner from 1868 Inside Out and is able to tell us what nursery rhyme this is set to. 1868. 1868. Septimus Septimus Winner. I don't know what this is set to, but I can at least read out the song. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, So, 12 little S-boats go to it like Bevan. Starfish goes a bit too far, then there were 11. 11 watchful S-boats doing fine and then. Seahorse Seahorse fails to answer, so there there are 10. 10 stocky S-boats in a ragged line. Starlet drops and stops out, leaving us 9. Nine plucky S-boats, all pursuing fate. Shark is overtaken. Now we are eight. And it goes on like this, uh, mentioning HMS Salmon, Spearfish, Swordfish, Snapper, Sunfish. Which meant that the three that survived were HMS Sea Lion, HMS Sea Wolf, and HMS Sturgeon. Right. See, that actually also answers a question that I was going to ask you, and I was worried that you wouldn't know the answer to, in that you said only three survived. I was going to ask whether we knew... Where in the order of them falling, shark came very early on by sound. Very like. early on. Um, well, we know from fifth of July, nineteen forty, it was very early on. But I mean, just war. in the order of the submarines. Exactly. Yeah. So it it does it does go on. So as I say, there was a, a song written about the S class. Wow. Um. So that that in essence was the capture of um Hammond. He was taken from Norway to Germany. And held in Bad Solza, actually, which we have discussed in the previous escape. We have. And then spent some time in uh, Marlag, which was a specific uh, specialised naval camp, um, often combined with another one, Milag und Morlag Nord. Uh, so it was a combined naval camp for merchant seamen and naval seamen. Yep. And it was there that he actually met Lister. Right. So I'm going to leave it there. Yes. And we'll meet up again in <laughs> we'll, Marlag. We'll like, rewind and look at Lister. I- exactly. So we're going to rewind and look at the capture of Lister uh, next. And if anything, his capture is even more interesting. Okay. Um, so I, I found this one fascinating. Um, so he served in HM Submarine Seal. Um, so a bit of a theme. I was going to say they're all very aquatically themed. Yes, exactly. Um, which was a mine layer, a slightly bigger submarine, so about 60 crew. Okay. It too had been previously been patrolling off the Norwegian coast uh, during the Norway campaign, but despite requesting permission to basically attack neutral ships, it was unsurprisingly denied. <laughs> um, and so HMS Seal actually saw no action in the Norway campaign. However, it was uh, on a mission in the Kattegat, 
which is the stretch of water between Denmark and Sweden. Right, yep, okay. Um, on a mine lane mission. It was a mine lane submarine, so it was on a mine lane mission. That sounds fairly reasonable. Now, from what I understand, there were requests for HMS SEAL to not... Uh, so the captain of HMS SEAL recommended to the Admiral that it not be used for this mission. The reason being that it was a relatively large submarine and the Katagat is not particularly deep. So okay. the assumption was that it'd be fairly easy to spot an attack. Yes. It was just considered too large a submarine for yeah. this mission. I feel like the captain may have been onto something here. <laughs> As I say, they were the their mission was to lay... Uh, mines in the Katagat, uh, the stretch of water between Denmark and Sweden. Yes. As they were doing this, they were spotted and attacked. Again, from what I understand, by air. They were partially damaged, but not so so bad as to have an issue. Okay. Uh, so they submerged. Right. Um, in order to avoid attack. Yes. And th- this did work in the short term, but unfortunately, uh, they had actually succeeded in laying their mines and ended up hitting the mine. <laughs> having submerged this actually caused severe damage to the submarine to the point that water was coming in now that in and of itself is pretty bad but it was having quite severe impact upon the ballast yep. uh, the um and the mechanics that allow them to rise and to, fall yeah, yeah. Uh, through the water and arguably most concerningly from the perspective of the uh, crewman it was actually impacting upon the pressure right so they were actually uh, in quite a lot of pain. I mean, they were in effect kind of getting the bends. Ah, right, yes. Um, yeah. And so the pressure was kind of building and building, causing yeah. headaches, that sort of stuff. In in effect, the, the only way they could really fix this was to resurface. But as I said, the damage was so severe that they were actually struggling. And they, they made uh, two attempts to try and uh, get themselves to resurface. Yeah. Um, but uh, both attempts failed. And this is, you know, we're already talking about several hours in here, and it actually reached the point whereby the captain, who was also an ordained Anglican minister, from what I can tell, <laughs> was actually leading the crew in the Lord's Prayer. Right. So they were fairly, you know, I think they were fairly accepting of their fate at this yeah. point. They were in serious, serious danger here. And it was around about that stage, basically, where an engineer realised that there was a pocket of air in one of the uh, middle compartments, I think. I think it was called, and they were able to use this to resurface. Right, and um, wow. there wasn't much capability left in the submarine, but they did succeed in resurfacing. That's incredible in itself. It no, it absolutely is. And uh, essentially, when they when they did resurface, the captain, a gentleman called Rupert Lonsdale, uh, had sent a cipher to the Admiralty, basically saying, "Managed to resurface, heading for Sweden." Mm-hmm. And they, although they did acknowledge this. They had already uh, sent all communications to the bottom of the sea, so they never actually received the communications oh, con- right. confirming <laughs> and acknowledging this. I actually, in fact, he received a congratulations and a, an acknowledgement of the success in resurfacing. Yeah. Um. Again, I'll come back to later. Yeah. But having obviously resurfaced, you got severely damaged, severely damaged submarine. Yeah. You've already been attacked, which is why you went, uh, which well, is why you, you submerged in the first place. And uh, they did try and make their way to Sweden, but they only had reverse gear working. Right. And, which they they kind of made an attempt to reverse all the way to Sweden. <laughs> reverse to Sweden. That's yeah, fantastic. in the middle of the Katagat. <laughs> An area which they'd already said they were too yeah. large to go down. Uh, essentially, yes. Yeah. So um, they did not succeed in reaching Sweden <laughs> and were effectively attacked 
and uh, captured again. Right. HMS Shark, the Hammond's submarine, yes. was perfectly fine when it was captured, but they scuttled it. Yep. This one actually was in far worse state, but was actually captured. And it turned out to be the only submarine that was actually captured by the Germans at sea in the entirety of the war. Wow. Which had some intelligence impact, because the Germans were able to work out... Uh, some information about the yeah. uh, British uh, submarine class and also apparently about um, the impact their torpedoes were having. Oh, I see, yeah. But also, they ended up being able to fix it and they took it into the service, uh, into their own service as a German U-boat. And it served out the war as a German U-boat. Wow. That's a real kind of kick to the face of um, of anyone that goes up against it. It is a little bit. And I'm, I'm just going to quickly touch upon the sort of post-capture career of Lonsdale, the captain of this submarine, because okay. he had essentially assumed that he had failed. Yes. And because he never received the acknowledgement from the Admiralty, so he never knew that they had actually congratulated him, thanked uh, him for saving right. lives, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was certainly then standard practice to court-martial any captain that loses his ship. I see. Um, and so after the war, he, he was taken prisoner of war and actually was, was involved in some escape attempts, but never succeeded. And after the war, he returned to the Admiralty and was put on court-martial. Um, however, because he had basically led an entire crew to safety yeah. from what was essentially the verge of death. Yes. I mean, he was leading them in the Lord's Prayer. They were they were not, you know... They, they didn't think there was a way out of it. They had reached the point of acceptance. Yeah. And he led the entire crew to safety. And he actually got his his charges were honourably discharged within half an hour. <laughs> there was just absolutely no way that they were charging this guy with failure to act. And in, in actual fact, you know, it, it turns out he was actually venerated as a hero. Oh, good. He had assumed that he was going to be dismissed for cowardice and failure and all this sort of God. stuff, and he was actually venerated as a hero. So I I actually really like this story of <laughs> the the crew of HMS Seal and uh, the captain uh, Rupert Long still because yeah. it's incredible how you kind of go from the verge of death through to escaping and yeah uh the sort of post-war career but also as i said the submarine itself served out the war in the as a german u-boat it's yeah. it was taken into german service so um yeah it's a nice little capture story oh. if you like <laughs> so lister has been captured uh and was taken to friedrichshaven and from there uh taken to Kiel in Germany yep and uh, he was interrogated um, we've discussed the interrogations upon capture quite yes, fairly yeah. extensively actually but one of the interesting points here is as I said earlier this turned out to be the only submarine that was captured by the Germans at sea mm -hmm. so they actually had no idea what they captured at this stage and they, he was actually asked during the interrogation whether there was a booby trap on the submarine. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> which I thought was quite a nice little detail. Because yeah. the, the to me, that reads as the Germans clearly have no idea what they know. have. They have no Just idea no what's idea. on their hands. And so they're trying to get out of <laughs> the crew that they've captured. It's like, have you booby-trapped this submarine that we have captured? Yeah, it's just going to blow up the second we go on it. <laughs> Basically, yes. Um, which I thought was quite an interesting little detail upon capture. And so he too was, uh, after interrogation, was moved into the prison camp system. So served some time in turn, which was Stalag 28. And then from there, he, he too moved to Marlag. Mm -hmm. So this is where he and Hammond, Hammond meet up. It's where we join back up with Hammond. It's where we join back up with Hammond, exactly. And actually, I think it's Hammond 
dis- describes Marlag briefly, whereby he says that conditions in Marlag were good, but there was a tendency for the prisoners of war there to become apathetic with the consequences that men wishing to escape were not always looked upon with favour by their comrades. Now, there's a couple of reasons why I wanted to pick up on that, but I suppose first and foremost, because this kind of contradicts the general narrative and perception of what prisoner of war camps were like. Yeah, no, I was going to bring ask a question about this as well, for that very reason. You know, it's, it's predominant amongst the camps that are you know, generally recognised are the likes of, as I say, Kolditz, Stalwolf Three are the two most famous camps. Yes. And the the general perception is, rightly or wrongly, that certainly rightly in the case of Cold, it's less so style with three, but not entirely without justification either, is that the vast majority of the camp were engaged in escape efforts. Yeah. And therefore, the perception is, because these are the well-known camps, or at least the escapes from them were well-known, you know, Cold, it's the Great Escape, the Wooden Horse. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, are from these two camps, and so um, I say, called it's Reed Neve. You know, is is the bad boys camp? It's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It's the um, <laughs> university for escapers, essentially. It's, <laughs> and so, because these are so preeminent in the escape narrative, it's given a general perception that across the entirety of the prisoner war population and the prisoner of war camp system is that the vast majority of prisoners of war were engaged in escape or. Pro- positive about it supportive and actual fact i know i discussed before about it was only five to fifteen percent yeah that were engaged in it but this is kind of the first time in a in a report that has actually explicitly acknowledged that it's also specifically interesting in this in this report because it's it's not just saying that people weren't interested or or in helping or trying to escape it's it's kind of also saying the op the other going really far the other way and saying that conditions here were good people liked it we didn't mind if we sort of just stayed here yeah uh, which was kind of the other point i was going to make was that by making conditions acceptable they actually reduced the amount of escape activity yeah, exactly. which is perhaps a lesson they should have learned for other camps and so in in that sense it, it makes the the fact that lister and hammond are proactively escaping all the more impressive so having met up in San Bostel, mm-hmm. uh, one of the Marlite camps, having just spent a couple of minutes describing how lethargic and apathetic towards escape the majority of the camp were, there was still some who were willing <laughs> to attempt escape. And now put, it does say they were put a lot of effort into and it. And put well. a lot of effort into it, absolutely, and a lot of sophistication into it, which I'll I'll we'll actually go into. Um, so it says here that under Captain Curtis of the Royal Marines, a party of about 20 dug a tunnel from a cesspool, which sounds revolting. Yeah, it doesn't sound like fun. But, you know, needs must when you need a tunnel dug. Yep. Um, the total length of the tunnel when complete was about 240 feet, which is pretty extensive. Um, and at its deepest point was about 4 feet 10 inches, which is not particularly deep. I mean, that's slightly above waist high. Mm. Um, so it's not very deep. No. And strikes me as the sort of tunnel that might collapse. So it took them about five and a half months to complete this tunnel. Work was always carried out in the afternoon. Um, and because the soil was sandy, we had to prop up the tunnel every two feet. For this, we used bedsteads taken from some of the disused huts in the compound. Uh, we used 72 beds for this. That's a lot of beds. It's a lot of beds because although they're disused, 
How did nobody walking past realise that there were just masses of beds missing from yes, where they should be? Exactly. And we, we stored the earth under the dining hut. However, I, I did find interesting um, that because of the length, 240 feet of this tunnel, uh, they were at, from these bedsteads, they were making trucks and like little train Runner, trucks yes, yeah. and runners and tracks for them to run along. And again, this is sort of foreshadowing the great escape that was to come later. Yeah. And there's kind of, you know, this is happening in 41, 42. So this is kind of the start of when escapes really started to become sophisticated. Yeah. Prior to this, yeah, sure, there were tunnel escapes and what have you. But the sophistication levels were really starting to ramp up as the security levels were also starting yes. to ramp up at this stage. And so you do start seeing things like, uh, you know, we made trucks from the bedstead drawing the soil for drawing the soil along the uh, tunnel. Uh, the wheels for these trucks were made for on a lathe. Uh, you know, where did they get a lathe from in, a, in a prisoner of war camp? But if the, the second half of that sentence is my favourite thing of this <laughs> whole thing. is is made from a lathe that had been constructed from an old gramophone. Yes. So they'd just taken apart a gramophone because it had the turning mechanism in there and just turned that into a lathe. Yeah. I mean, I know... They were there and there was lots of smart people working on it, but I wouldn't have a clue how to do that. No, no, and it's, there's just so, there's so much sophistication in how they go about this, but there's so much ingenuity as well. that's exactly the word I was going to say. It's just fascinating to see the efforts, and you know, ultimately, you know, spoiler alert, this wasn't a successful escape, and yet, look at the level of ingenuity, sophistication, effort... Um, and thought that went into this is it is absolutely fantastic. You know, the pit head wheel was made from an old wheelbarrow wheel, and the rope was made from plaited string from Red Cross parcels. For digging, we had a hatchet and a hand shovel, and at 150 feet, we had found we had to ventilate the tunnel, so we made a drill from a jointed badminton pole, um, a bit from a blackout shutter hinge, and with this, we bored a hole three inches in diameter. So it's only they're only boring up four and a half feet, so it is relatively shallow. But yeah, but they're able to ventilate this this tunnel. I mean, this this is a great effort. Yeah, I'm and sorry it failed, but this is a great effort. On they they actually ended up escaping on sixth of April, nineteen forty two, and uh, Hammond and Lister escaped together along with another uh, engine room artificer called Johnson. Mm-hmm. And uh, they ended up separating after a couple of days, and uh, Hamden, Liss- Hammond and Johnson, sorry, were recaptured uh, on the day they parted. But uh, Lister actually made it all the way to Hamburg, um, and survived for eight days. It's pretty impressive. Uh, yeah, he was eventually recaptured, uh, trying to get through a, a tunnel under a bridge where he was checked for papers. Um, but he had previously said that although he had a compass, he had no papers and very little money. Um, so when when the paper check kind of came up, uh, you know, he was stopped by police and taken to the police station and basically just returned to the camp. Yeah. Um, for which he was given twenty one days in solitary confinement. Yeah. So a fantastic effort. Uh, you know, I, I feel I have to applaud this effort. You know, he made it to Hamburg, which is a port. Yep. Um, so he was well on his way. Uh, to getting home um, but unfortunately was unsuccessful that didn't stop Lister and Hammond teaming up again yes but not before they'd had a few more adventures <laughs> so um, because of their sort of dedicated escape um, activities uh, although they were returned to uh, the Marlag camp 
and we're kind of moved around some of the compounds there. Um, 17 of them, all of whom were uh, the Germans suspected of being engaged in escape activities were moved to initially to Stalag 8B in Lambsdorff, right? Um, which we shall come to later. And then a month after this initial move, they were actually moved to Colditz. Yes. Which is brilliant. Yeah. Um, so essentially, their, their escape activities were so extensive that they had been moved to the bad boys camp. <laughs> Again, 17 of them, uh, 14 officers and three ERAs. Um, including Hammond and Lister, were sent uh, to Colditz. Yes. They were essentially in in Colditz for about a month, September to October 1942. And they seem to have basically used the opportunity to get as much escape information and escape materials as they could humanly gather in that time. And bear in mind, Colditz was, I call it the bad boys camp, but these were the dedicated escapers. These were the people who knew their stuff. They really knew their stuff. I mean, these were the ones that had been sent there precisely because they were just repeatedly escaping. Yeah. Um, so it was only a bad boys camp from a German's perspective. <laughs> from from the British perspective, it really was like Escape University. I mean, yeah. th- this was um, the best of the best from an escape perspective. Yes, and this really absolutely. was a camp that was dedicated to escape um, and was incredibly difficult to get out of. Um, and so having spent a month uh, gathering all the escape information they could, including money and forged papers, um, the... They basically, after a month, realised that it would be near impossible for them to escape from this camp. Yes. And so volunteered up the fact that they were not officers. Um, now, bear in mind that uh, Colditz is O-Flag 4C. O-Flag being officer lager. Officer's camp. Yeah. Therefore, by virtue of not being officers, they were actually not supposed to be there. <laughs> Despite being inveterate escapers themselves, yeah. they were not officers and therefore should not have been sent to Colditz. And they quite willingly got themselves taken out of Colditz. And it's actually quite smart because they kind of made it more possible for them to escape by getting out of Colditz. They kind of went to Colditz, levelled up all of their knowledge, yeah, and then went back to somewhere where it was easier to break out of. Yeah, exactly. And uh, essentially got themselves sent back to Lambsdorff. Also effectively breaking out of Colditz, really simply, by going... I don't belong here. Yeah, no, exactly. In some ways, it's the most simplistic escape from Colditz that yeah. anyone achieved. And some of the, you know, some of the escapes from Colditz are enormously complex and absolutely yeah. fascinating. I'm sure we will get onto we'll them get in, in later episodes. Um, but I, I actually applaud Lister and Hammond it's for, great, isn't it? for their escape from Colditz, although. Technically, they just went to another camp. Their <laughs> escape from Colditz is brilliant. Yep. Um, so yeah, they were they were sent back to uh, Stalagate B, which, as I said, is Lambsdorff. So Lambsdorff uh, was then part of Germany, is now in uh, Poland, mm-hmm. in the southwest of Poland, in Silesia, and is round about just over 800 kilometers from the Swiss border. Right, okay. Um, it, it, it's kind of hard to say just now, you know, uh, where it was in relation to the border then, because yep. the border has since moved. Yes. It is now known as Lambanovici. Nice. Very good pronunciation. Thank you, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, having got themselves sent back there, um, 
they were actually initially shackled. Now, I previously talked about in the, in the previous episode about how reprisals were taking place and some Allied prisoners of war were being shackled as a result of a supposed atrocity that had taken place in Canada. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, yes, they were, they were actually having found themselves back at Lambsdorff. They were involved in these reprisals. Yes. Um, and eventually they managed to get themselves out of this by volunteering to work, uh, which was initially refused actually um but eventually uh a sergeant major in the grenadier guards managed to get them attached to a working party okay so i think i've mentioned before under the geneva convention officers were not required to work but other rankings were right or more accurately could be put to work okay um and so they by although by not being an officer got them out of cold it's it did mean they had to go, then go onto a working party. Okay, right, but this right. then enabled them to be in a, in a much better position to make an escape attempt because they were then getting out of camp on a daily basis. Yep. they were still guarded. Yeah, of course. but they were daily marching out of camp, going to uh, in this case a gas works uh, in Bristow, and so uh, this is how they made their escape uh, was by by getting onto this working uh, party in the gas works. Uh, they were employed as labourers and basically climbed a wall at dusk. Nothing more than that. Uh, the, <laughs> nice, nice, simple escape. Yep, exactly. Um, some of the best are the most simple. Um, and they escaped with a private topping and a rifleman Nisbeth, neither of whom succeeded in escaping, unfortunately for them. Yep. But what is interesting is how they, they then quite explicitly say the advantage that cold it's brought them. So yes. uh, we had with us the papers we'd obtained in O Flag 4C, which is called it's describing us as Belgian workmen and an Ausweis, which is a work permit, uh, allowed us, which allowed us to travel from Leipzig uh, to Rottweil. Which, uh, Leipzig is southeast of Berlin. It's essentially a mirror image on the on what is now the German-Polish border. Yep. Uh, Leipzig is about the same distance on the other side of the German-Polish border from. Lambinovici. So they're kind of equidistant from... Yeah, equidistant from the border. Okay, what right. is now the border. Right. Uh, obviously things were different then, but what is now the border yes. between Germany and Poland. And so Leipzig was quite a convenient place. It's actually very close to Kolditz. Right, okay, um, so it's quite a, quite a convenient place to get to. Then. Precisely. Right. Yeah, ha- having made the escape, they, they had managed to pull together actually quite an impressive um, escape kit once again. Um, and it's quite clear that they'd, uh, we, you know, we, again, we've discussed before whether to go by train uh, by or by public services yeah. or by foot and the requirements and implications of that yes. choice. And so they had decided to go by train, predominantly, mm-hmm. and so had managed to pull together quite an extensive and impressive escape kit yes. as a result. And again, uh, having spent some time in cold it's this seems to have actually benefited them rather than hindered them at yeah. all and so I'll, I'll just read out uh, their full escape kit i wore khaki trousers a black macintosh originally dispatch riders which had been dyed black with black boot polish a green trilby hat and brown shoes i carried a briefcase containing some food shaving tackle and a towel quickly uh again we've discussed in uh the wooden horse the Two, es- two escapes from the wooden horse mm-hmm. and another is about the importance of assimilating and looking presentable if you're going to yeah, escape of, of keeping up route. appearances keeping up appearances yeah. exactly so again he's used a briefcase and used that to carry uh, paraphernalia that is 
essential to this type of escape. Yeah. Actually, an, an important detail and an interesting detail that kind of takes us back to the cigarette point that we made in the last escape. Mm-hmm. The entire contents of this case were German. I liked that, yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, it, it is a small detail, but the point being that if anyone had chosen to look inside the suitcase, yeah, it would. it's the marginal gain again. Yeah. You know, it, there's no... There's nothing from a British or Canadian or allied Red Cross parcel here. Yeah. There's nothing that's been sent from home by a British family. Uh, there's no uh, trademark or label that says Savile Row or whatever, yeah. <laughs> you know. Something that is c- certifiably and identifiably British yes. or allied. The contents are all German, so that yeah. if it is ever checked, it would fit within the story it that would yeah it would aid them exactly like in, in my head and i don't know how accurate this is i don't even know whether it being all german would necessarily help them if they were properly searched but if they're on a train and happen to open the case and someone next to you looks over your shoulder yeah and just sees that it's all german stuff that if it was if it was english or allied that would cause an alert whereas german stuff wouldn't Yes, no, it, precisely. As I say, it's, it's a marginal gain. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh, I suppose, the easiest way to may- maybe look at it is it's something that they don't need to stress about. Yes, exactly. And, you know, almost flip it around. It's, it's, it's not a problem. Yeah. It's not something that they need to hide or cover or let slip. They know that they're covered by the fact that these yeah. are German products. Uh, so they then go on to say that we had... Uh, we also had 200 marks each, uh, marks being the German, yeah, German currency at yep. the time, uh, which we had smuggled out of Colditz. Uh, between Hammond and I, we had an Air Force compass, a rice paper map, and a magnetised saw blade. Again, I, I have mentioned this before in previous episodes, but these are very strong indicators of uh, assistance by British intelligence. Yep. And I would... If not assume, I would be fairly confident that they probably acquired all of these in Colditz as well. Yeah, it uh, seems like they've taken a lot from their time there. Yes, exactly. And certainly I know Colditz was receiving a lot of assistance from British intelligence. Yeah. And so there, it seems highly likely that having spent a month there and having literally just said in, in this report that they got money from their time in Colditz, mm-hmm. I would be, feel fairly confident that they'd also received the map compass and saw blade from Colditz as well. Is is it magnetised just to make it easier to hide somewhere, the saw blade? No, not not that I'm aware of. From what I understand, most uh, most of the magnetised materials that were sent in were actually to uh, for making of compasses. In order to magnetise the needle. Oh, I see. So you okay. then make so you can, a homemade compass. So you could use a saw practically, but also then magnetise a needle to use to be able to make a compass. Precisely. That makes yep. great sense. That makes perfect sense. So yeah. one of the things that they definitely magnetised and smuggled in uh, were razor blades. Right. The point being that, of course, you can use a razor blade for yep. not just shaving, but equally it was quite common to magnetise these... Uh, razors and use that for magnetizing the needle and turn it into a compass right okay so yeah although it's a saw blade on in this occasion that is likely yeah i I didn't know that i was thinking i was just thinking does that make it easier to stick it somewhere to hide or potentially not beyond the realms of possibility but also yeah to to magnetize a needle for a compass that that makes total sense yeah uh, I wouldn't, I would, I wouldn't rule out that hiding possibility. You know, you can maybe stick it inside a stanchion of a, a bunk beds or something yeah. like that in the camp, um, or behind a pipe, lead yeah. piping in a camp, or something along those lines. It, it, I wouldn't rule it out as a possibility, but certainly I am aware that a lot of a lot of the magnetized materials were sent in for enabling the making of compasses. Okay. Um, 
Anyway, so from there they took the tram, having got out of the gas works at Breslau. Yeah. They then took the tram to, tram to the train station, and then took the train and. Again, what what I find interesting about this is they did a series of short journeys. Yes. Um, which harks back to previous episodes. Yep. Previous escapes that we have covered. And it was, in essence, to uh, avoid... Not avoid detection as such, because you, you could still be checked on yeah, the short journey. It's kind of also to hide the direct path of where they go. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it doesn't draw so much attention as if you just buy a ticket to Berlin, yes. for example. <laughs> You're almost guaranteed to be checked in yeah. that, but if you do a series of short journeys, it draws less attention to your escape. So they went to uh, from Breslau to Liegnitz, then to Görlitz, then Dresden, then Hof, Nuremberg, Augsburg, and then to Ulm. Uh, where in Ulm they uh, slept in a hotel for a night. So again, this is um, keeping up appearances. Yeah, I know from other reports that they have suggested that only around you know sixty marks was all that was required to enable an escape like this. It was more than sufficient, and so at two hundred marks each, four hundred marks. That's, I mean, it's great. It's great, though. but it's a little bit of overkill. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's a lot of cash to to be carrying around. Yeah. Uh, so having stayed overnight in the hotel, uh, they then made their. They then continued up by train. Um, so they're making very speedy uh, escape here, and so they continued on by train to Tutlingen. So by this stage, they're actually quite close to the Swiss border, yeah. or at least you know get making their way. You know they've covered a fair amount of those eight hundred and ten kilometers. Yeah, from uh, Lambsdorff to uh, Ramsen in Switzerland, which is where they're ultimately heading. Okay, um, so. From Tutlingen, they then walked to Engen, across country, and then by road to Singen. And uh, they basically walked along the Singen to Schaffhausen Railway. Ah. So, you know, there there's that place again, Schaffhausen. Although they didn't actually head to Schaffhausen, they made their way to Ramsen, which is in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, and that's ultimately where they crossed the Swiss frontier. Uh, so although the report itself doesn't actually detail... Uh, the rest of their escape because they ultimately made their way to Gibraltar uh, we have covered the route in relative detail before yep. uh, whereby they would be taken in uh, by the British authorities in Switzerland in neutral Switzerland and make their way towards uh, Geneva mm-hmm. where they would then re-enter occupied Europe over, by, over in France and make their way down an escape line uh, v- typically via Marseille down through the Pyrenees uh, to Barcelona, Madrid, and then on to Gibraltar. Yeah. And as I say, although it doesn't explicitly state that, that was almost certainly the route that he followed. But, yeah. Uh, just by virtue of location, and uh, it does give final destination as Gibraltar. Uh, so... <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> we can be as certain as we possibly can be without it being written out yeah. that that is the route they that, took. That's where they went. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that the reason it isn't written is because the British intelligence sources that these reports come from knew that that was the route that they would have taken. So they actually didn't need to write it out. It was just understood that that was the route that they took. But I think it is worth pointing out that they actually reached uh, Switzerland on the 18th of December 1942, which is five days after their escape on the 13th of December 1942. But they didn't actually reach Gibraltar until the 23rd of February 1944. 44. 44. So the, they, it took them five days to get to Switzerland and 14 months to get to Gibraltar. I mean, we've mentioned this before, just 
how slow those lines have to be because they have to be so secretive and so careful. Exactly. But it, it still blows my mind when you say stuff like that. It took them five days to get out of there and then pff, a year and a half to, to carry on back through to Gibraltar. That's... Yeah. Oh, that must be... It, it must the scale have, it, of time of, yeah. as a prisoner of war escapee in that in that must be just crazy. And the temptation to almost try and go it alone, yeah, ha, ha, because you have succeeded to going it alone. You it took you five days to get from uh, Poland, what is now Poland, all the way to Switzerland. Yeah, and yet to then be expected to kind of kick your heels for fourteen months while you slowly make your way through occupied Europe and then quote unquote neutral Spain. Yeah. Um, on your way to Gibraltar, it must have been very frustrating. I mean, especially as I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I imagine a lot of that is just sitting in a room waiting for someone to contact you. Yes, yeah, so, it would have been in safe houses. Yeah, in safe houses sitting in safe stuff. houses waiting to be collected. Whereas you spent the first five days of your escape on the run, getting getting there, doing it as fast as you can, as efficiently as you can, mm. and then months just sitting in a room. But I suppose. You, you ultimately just had to trust. Yeah, I mean, yeah, of course. Um, and it obviously worked as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you had to trust the system, trust the route, trust that these people knew what they were doing. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't doubt that they did, but it, it nonetheless, it must have been quite a frustrating experience. Yeah, on very the mentally taxing, I would have thought. Uh, nonetheless, in, you know, he still managed to get himself back oh absolutely uh, well yeah. they both did Lister and Hammond yeah. in their joint escape uh, got themselves back to uh, the UK okay um, well thank you everybody for listening to this week's episode we hope you've enjoyed it um, if you have um, please consider subscribing to the podcast uh, we can be found on Apple iTunes um, Google Podcasts or uh, any basically any of your favourite podcast platforms or you can follow us on Twitter on at FIT W-I-O um, If you'd like to send us a more long form message then you can also email us at fytwiopod at gmail.com Thank you very much for listening Thank you Thank you